Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, it's 2023 for the first time, the Drive-by Cinema. It's also episode 22, oh, not confusingly, 22. of season three of the podcast where we listen to movies. No, where we you listen to us talking about having watched movies so you don't have to watch the movies. A.K.A. the with, podcast that refuses to die. With my co-host, Paul. Nearing completion, Paul. And my co-host, Richard. Nearing completion. Yes, well done. Yeah. Hello. You said you couldn't remember this movie, Paul. I think you're no, all over it. Deeply affecting. What, what movie? We've just gone through the Christmas and New Year period. Yeah. As it were. So, have you been anywhere exciting? Done anything? Uh, I've been to your hometown, Manchester, and that's about it, really. You didn't, didn't pay me a visit, though, did you? You just got wasted and blind. Yeah, I got blind, blind drunk, yeah. So. I was saying that I went out into Manchester oh. as well recently... I played a kind of electric mini golf whereby oh. it counts your shots for you. It's all indoors. I thought it was so the kind of mini golf where you hit it into a green screen and went, no. and the cloth went, and then it generated a. No, but it's all like neon and lights and LEDs, and you kind of clock into the hole by tapping your putter on, on the tee, and then you swing at your ball and it, and it counts your score for you against all of your. Your, your fellow players. Very clever. So you're actually in the urban uh, playground. Do you move through a virtual golf course virtually, or do you go to No, it's an actual mini golf course inside in a building, in an interior. I know, it's baffling. Yeah, I can see you. No, I, I'm just wondering how it is. So, but you play virtual shots, or you actually play real shots? You play real shots with oh, a real ball. Okay. But it, it knows that you're playing a shot when you're playing a shot. Wow. It's clever. I guess it's like cheap proof, isn't it? It's like the kind of thing where it can trap the ball eventually at some point in the future. And therefore, you know, people like Donald Trump can't cheat on it, can Yeah, except you can obviously kick the ball in the hole, can't you, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm sure you could cheat. If Donald Trump wanted a round of golf there, he probably would find it to his liking, I'm sure, in some way. Um, yep. So yeah. I had a blackout when I got drunk in China, uh, not China, in Manchester, Chinatown, also part of it. Uh, so if you know, if I did manage to piss on your shoes during that time, whoever is listening, I'm really sorry. So you went to Chinatown as well? I, I think so. Yeah, because I remember shopping for lettuce in a Chinese supermarket. Lettuce or pak choy? I, I, pak choy. I remember buying it, but it didn't make itself home with me. <laughs> So, so you left it on the way out. I don't know. <laughs> Eating raw and washed cab- cauliflower or cabbage. I don't know what happened. But yeah. Yeah, so I, I went to the theatre. I went to see The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Light applause for Richard's uh, cultured nature. It was on a recommendation from a good friend. And hello, Gavin, if you're listening. And uh, yeah, it was very good. I enjoyed it. I also went to see Avatar in the movies, Paul. And oh, I- never mind. I don't think you think much of the Avatar franchise, do you? It, it's it's kind of like the Kevin Costner Waterworld that somehow has bypassed people's sense of taste, isn't it? I find the the allegories to colonialism and ethnicity baffling and bewildering. Oh, is that what it's all about? Oh, they're well, an the ethnicity, was... the blue people. I see. I, the first one was... This the, explains the Richard's pre-show comments to me now. Okay, I, I understand that. The tribes are kind of loosely based on kind of South American tribes, I think, in the first yeah. uh, Avatar, aren't they? And then the white man comes and tries to rip up all their trees and they get upset and stuff like that. I think you would do. But of course, but because the hero is played by a white guy who's literally puts on the avatar of one of the natives... So it's like the ultimate Ooh, in cultural appropriation, Whoa. isn't it? I didn't know that because I fell asleep in it. And so he saves them, but he is literally the white saviour. It's like a white saviour complex movie. Not even a friend of the trans, not even a friend of the gays. Just the saviour of. He, he saves them from the white invaders. Well, that's good in a kind of way. I, okay, so white saviour, yeah. I mean, okay, so, you know, he's, he's on an ego trip. 
But he does actually save him from the white invaders. I mean, it is better than being a white invader, isn't it, being a white saviour? Or is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, on the scale of things, it's an improvement. I just don't understand how... So let's frame it positively, you know. How hippie were the characters in this one? Are they still really like hippie people? They're quite hippie-ish. Is it 35-year-olds still selling seashells on a beach in Thailand? Kind of vibe. Well, this one takes place on a beach. This is a big innovation over the last 10 years that everyone's been Water waiting world. for the sequel. He's, he's invented the ability, to, or the industry has invented the ability to do water properly. Oh, how fun. So now everything takes place in and on the sea um, with uh, space whales and stuff like that. But no Nemo. No, no, no. I not, thought Nemo's underwater was quite convincing CGI wise. And the bad guys now are white whalers, effectively. And the original tribe are now the outsiders for uh-huh. the sea tribe. Uh, but it's the same story. He has to learn how to, how to ride fish. One of the things that I never Fucking was really hell. convinced by in Avatar, and it continues to, be, to perplex me, is the idea that all life on Pandora has got the same USB connection that you can just plug into with your ponytail. That seems a contrivance, you know, too far. We didn't need that. They could have ridden animals without a USB connection, couldn't they? Whoa. Surely. I, I'm not saying James Cameron hasn't done really good movies, but was he director on this one or was he just some sort of executive? I, I imagine he was heavily involved. I, I'm not saying he has, he has done good movies, okay, but you know, I don't think the Avatar franchise is an exemplar of that. So I was saying some rather uncharitable things about the Blue People. And how, you know, uh, they're only there in this movie because they failed an audition to be Jar Jar Blinks. Jar Jar Binks in, in Star Wars. Yeah, well... But you think, you yeah. think, you think my di- in- intolerance of them is formed of a general intolerance of difference and diversity. It's a deep-seated and thinly-veiled racism, that's all, Paul. <laughs> and I count that, why do I, why do I like Chewbacca then? And I said that he's just like a dog to you, isn't he? <laughs> because, because he can't speak properly, you think he's... So you don't he's think it's got anything to do with the fact that Jar Jar Binks has got a really annoying character? Some would find him annoying, yes, perhaps. But Okay, but that's just veiled. Just, he's just clumsy. He's just clumsy and lacks some social graces, that's all. I don't see why that's... Is that it? Are you sure that's all it is? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Oh, fuck. Richard's outing me here. As being a Jar Jar Binks hater. <laughs> Do we need to move on? Well, we need to talk about movie. last week. Last week's huh? movie, which was Troll, I do believe. Troll, yes. We made a mistake, did we? No, I don't I don't believe so. Oh, that's fine then. Except to say. Well, it well, wasn't about the movie. I think I don't know how we got talking about copyright patent and trademark. Yes, and oh, I was yeah. saying, I was saying you couldn't wholesale copy, you know, the outer styling of a car, and you said, "Well, I don't think there's anything in patent, copyright, or trademark law that stops you doing that." And insofar as you said that, you're correct. However, in certain jurisdictions, including the US and the UK, there is something called design protection law, which is sui generis. It's it's a law of its of its own particular kind. It just exists on its own and is there to stop people wholesale copying the fundamental outer appearance of uh, of, uh, of products. What it doesn't protect from is uh, paint, non-paintable inner workings. So, like, you know, if your car's got a certain kind of style of engine uh, that isn't to do with the patent, then anybody can copy that because it's not, it's not typically visible from the outside. So there is something called design protection that protects the external appearance or if you put in for design protection, protects your the external appearance appearance of your of your, of your product from being wholesale copied from others. Well, so that's not that's, a widely adopted legal framework, is it? It's sui generis, um, okay. It is of of its own, and it's not widely adopted around the world. But it would apply. You could argue. I mean, there is a case for saying that Colin the Caterpillar, were he able to talk, would be able to put forward this claim about. Well, if it was taking place in the US, which it isn't. Or the UK. In the UK. Or, no, in the US or the UK. Oh. Yes. Okay. But not in other places. So it is quite localised. I, I think patent law pretty much extends around the world, by and large, doesn't it? Maybe not in places like Venezuela. Well, there are agreements and treaties in place to recognise patents. But 
So in which, if if what you're saying is true, Paul, and it is true, why did MS not use that law to sue Aldi? Because they didn't. They sued trademark for trademark infringement. Why, why do lawyers settle for their clients when they know their client's not guilty? Why did they settle out of court? Yeah, like Aldi did, for instance, because it's cheaper than it's cheaper, to... and there's a risk involved. There's there's the risk of positive and negative publicity, uh, of course. Yeah. No, uh, false. There's false positives and false negatives in terms of. Let's let's assume that we we can know. Davis, Davis McKenna, ex Davis McKenna, about whether somebody is guilty or innocent. Yeah, let's say we can see that. Then that's a state. Yeah, but I mean, there there are there are dangers of false and negative, uh, false positives and false negatives in terms of how a jury or a judge will decide on, and it's risking. The gain or loss from an incorrect decision against the gain or loss from paying out before them. So I assume that's what's happened here. Aldi have done the maths and said there's maybe a ten percent or fifteen percent chance it won't it won't go our way. What we'll be losing that circumstance three and a half million. Let's pay out of four hundred fifty thousand kind of thing. Quite so, yeah. Some kind of calculation has taken place. Well, it's it's a very it's a very complex calculation, uh, quite similar to the the marriage value of uh, re-leasing leasehold properties when their when their lease is within seventy five years of ending. There's some really complex mathematics in both situations. Have you got a spreadsheet, Paul? Well, we don't need to because we've got uh, oh. we've got Chat GPT these days. Haven't we? <laughs> yes, we do. At that point, it really is time for the music. So I hope you're getting ChatGPT to write all your notes, are you, from now on? Sort of preparing a script, is it? Is that what's happening? Am I speaking no. to a robot from here on? No, out? I mean, I, I was kind of tempted six months ago. I thought, why don't I do some AI calendars and some AI children's stories? Uh, but this is before ChatGPT hit the headlines like one month ago now, one and a half months ago now. And of course, everybody's doing that anyway, so... So I've really missed an the AI calendar, Paul. I think you'll find the calendar's mostly been settled since June no, times. So. No, I meant <laughs> a wall calendars, Richard. Well, what what with pictures? With pictures, yeah. Okay. Naked pictures of people. That's it. Naked pictures in people. the style of Munch's scream, you know, or that kind of thing. The kind of thing <laughs> that AI is really good at. <laughs> yeah. But of course, everybody's jumped on that boat, you know. Uh, and the other one is that uh, the other one is, of course, children's stories. You know, Amazon is now just flooded with Chat GPT, really professional-looking kind of stories that don't really go anywhere, but kids enjoy to read. You know, so Paul. Speaking of this week's film, yeah, what is it me, about? What is, what is it called? You normally ask me, Richard. Well, I can ask you that. Also, though, who who was it written by? Okay, so it's Never Let Me Go. Yeah, from 2010. Was, of course, the no- original novel from 2005 was, of course, written by Kazuo Ishiguro, who is, is he mixed uh, nationality? Does he have two passports, Japanese and UK passports? I'm not sure. Well, he's lived in the UK since he was about six. But other than that, you know, I think he's ethnically Japanese. Oh, he's ethnically Japanese, way, okay, right. I believe, uh, uh, but... Obviously, he must have lived here for a long time because all of his books are suffused with a deep understanding of British reserve and manners and politeness and society. Exactly. I think Remains of the Day was what, early 90s with uh, Anthony, yeah. Anthony Thopkins. Uh, was almost a study in Britishness, wasn't it? What is it, though, about Japanese that allows they to see the British so clearly? Yeah. I don't know. Clive James wrote a novel about a young Japanese man coming to England to write poetry and novels and falling in love with, you know, an English punk Rose kind of girl. Who might have been called Rose, I'm not sure. Uh, so he was looking into that. What Because in the novel, you know, there's this thing where the, the, the Japanese guy just gets the British in a clearer way than the British could ever get themselves. I don't know. It's something peculiar and particular about British culture and Japanese culture that allows... There is simpatico between two island nations who see themselves a bit aloof and apart from the continent that they're, they're part of, mm-hmm. I think. I don't know, but our social fabric's very different, isn't it? I mean, 
without angering British people too much, but the social fabric of Japan is made of silk, isn't it? You know, whereas ours is increasingly warped Hessian. from. Yeah, I've said this before, Hessian or dope. You know, I mean, like, uh, I, th- I mean, there are those definite geopolitical and sort of island island culture mentalities, I think. But at the same time, I, I think our cultures are very, very, very. Absolutely, they are different. That distance gives writers like Ishiguro the ability to see us from an, with an outsider perspective as well as an insider perspective. But, you know, they're also really good. The Japanese are also really good at doing the high-classness that our society has, right? Yeah. You won't see a seaside resort. I, I don't see seaside <laughs> resorts this the way that he sees them. Uh, or whether the way this <laughs> no, no, director no, no. has interpreted, but I'm sure it's pretty much faithful to the novel. You know, he, he, I don't know how he does that. You're right. He sees the slow tick of the clock in the drawing room in, in Britain as having almost a resonant cultural value, doesn't he? But also, uh, this uh, this film has got the, the score is you know plaintive piano music, mm-hmm. and you can imagine it being played on a highly polished. Yamaha. Uh, gr- Yamaha, exactly. <laughs> Grand piano. Well, why are the Japanese so good at European, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? High, high art music, musically. Uh, I don't know, but it's true. You know, or it seems to be. Maybe maybe our perceptions of Japan are skewed. I doubt it. I, I, I believe there's truth in all that. I don't know. It's it's curious, isn't it? And it's almost unanswerable. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely there. He he, very perceptive, really, in, in the way that doesn't eviscerate or skewer British culture, but he, he certainly sets it, uh, you know, as, as butterfly specimens in a, in, a, in a book to be examined, you know. The director who you briefly mentioned is, of course, Mark. Alex Garland. Oh, I, it, does he, I thought he just wrote the screenplay. Oh, maybe he wrote the screenplay, yeah. I don't know. I'll have to check it. No, that, that sounds right. That sounds right. I wrote his name down, though, because Alex Garland was behind... Um, the Beach. The Beach, but also one of the films we did early on, what? Yeah, the what's it called? It's the the one with the robot. Is it Deus Ex? Ex Machina? Ex Machina. Ex Machina. The, the one with the guy. Yeah, he goes to see. Five minutes ago, I just said Ex Deus Machina. Okay, I got mixed up. But yeah, uh, Ex Machina. <laughs> Deus Ex Machina is the original phrase, isn't it? There's a ZX Spectrum game that promised to be great with that title. It was really crap. Yes, I know it well. Do you ever play it? No. Uh, oh, did I? No, I don't think I ever played it. I oh. think it was. Badly, very badly reviewed, wasn't it? Of course. It eventually came out. Not as apocryphally, apocryphally wonderful as Bandersnatch, I imagine. Or the game that Ultimate Player the Game never released, but I can't remember what it was called. Because Bandersnatch became immortalised in the Black Mirror episode on Netflix. Which it did, yes. yeah. But bears no relation, I don't think, to the original conception of the game. No. Which I think they were... It was a nice platform original. game. They were going to put it on... Um, a sort of cartridge. I think you had to plug an extra bit in yeah. with more memory into the spectrum. So I'm trying to think, you know, Matthew wrote Manic Minor. He was yes. never part of Imagine, was he? He just sold the rights. No, he was an independent software project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matthew Smith, wasn't it? He did it. Yeah. I mean, he could have got it down to 48K, I think. But nobody else, nobody Imagine could do. Well, I think they were trying to do a sort of sandbox game in an era where the memory wasn't really available. Except, of course, Elite manages to do it. In 32K, wasn't it? Yeah, BBC, yeah. The old BBC, yeah. Yeah. Enough of this, Paul. We must talk about Never Let Me Go. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Did it depress you over the Christmas period? (laughs) No, it didn't. Okay. I mean, there's this elegaic swish to all his movies that might make you feel melancholic. Uh, this is Kazuo Ishiguro, sorry, his novels and there, the movies made, adapted from them. Uh, but no, it didn't make me melancholic or sad. It did make me somewhat wistful, you know, for dead family members and that kind of thing. And also contemplative philosophical end of it all. Yeah, you have to think about those things, but it's nothing I don't think about on a daily basis anyway. So To set the scene in the story, the start of the film explains that in 1952 there was a medical breakthrough which obviously must involve cloning and organ transplants. And this allowed to increase people's lifespan. Wow. And we now see a school in a place called Hailsham. Is it ever explained in the movie, that part? Very briefly at the beginning. Yeah. Blinking, oh. you miss it. You may have been making a cup of tea. or You know me well, Richard. Pumping your cushions or whatever you do as the movie's credits. Oh, you know me very well. well. 
Well, have you got the camera? <laughs> oh, it's up there. It's very cleverly disguised, Paul. You would never, you would never recognise it. You have to turn the lights off and shine your mobile phone around to see the lenses, don't you? That's how they, they do it in hotels. Is that how they do it? I think so, yeah. The movie starts in 1978 in this school in Hailsham. They're in a school assembly and the students are being told that they should never smoke. And we then see the kids outside playing cricket with a tennis bat. And one kid called Tommy, when the ball goes over the school fence, he stops short, he won't leave the school grounds. Which admittedly I wouldn't have done when I was his age either. But other kids would. They would just nip through the railings and go and get the ball. But I didn't think that was allowed. I thought it was illegal for school kids, <laughs> for school kids to leave the school grounds. <laughs> I thought it was like Alcatraz. You don't want to be hunted down with dogs. <laughs> So you never pop down boots to do some shoplifting? No, no, shoplifting. Never? Uh, well, no way, no. Whoa. No. I never left the school grounds. Except There may have been one or two occasions where I was persuaded to, but it would just not come naturally to me. So did you never skip classes? No, never never skipped classes. No. So at lunchtime you might have popped out once or twice because mates told you to. To the, to the chippy or, or something like that, yeah. yeah. You know, food... Those vices, those bodily kind of drives might, might, might lead you beyond the boundary, but nothing, nothing else would have done. So Helsham is, you know, very much, you know, of its era, you know, a, a boarding school, we assume? They are boarding, uh, set yes. in acres, yeah, yeah. Set in acres of land, okay. Uh, is it a state board or is it private board? We're not sure because they both existed at that time. Uh, but there's an institutional feel to everything in there, isn't there? That's kind of hinted at from the very start. And there's a new teacher there, and she's speaking to one of the girls about why Tommy wouldn't leave the boundary. And the girl says, well, you've heard the story, haven't you, about the girl who left the grounds and they wouldn't let her back in. And she starved right outside the gate. And there was another story about a kid who went into the forest and when they found him, his hands and feet had been cut off. And the teacher asks, you know, but are they true stories? Well, you know, why do you believe them? And the girl says, you know, who would make up something so, so horrible? Is this Miss Lucy, the new teacher you talk I believe about? so, yeah. yeah. We've seen shots of them creating artwork, and the artwork is, their artwork is somehow revered and collected. Except it's all in blue paint, isn't it? They don't seem to have any other colours of paint. <laughs> and we also see that all the kids are wearing a wristband with a microchip on it or something, and they have to swipe in and out of all of their classes, which is quite advanced technology for 1978, I put it to you. But there's something really timeless about art classes and art classrooms and the art that's on the wall in there. There's something unchanging about it, isn't there? You know, students' graphite sketches of eyes eyes and, and noses kind of thing. Very strange, I think. It's like kids. Well, maybe. But they're collecting this art. I don't know why. Yeah, they're collecting the art. Yeah. Uh, Tommy gets bullied, doesn't he, by the other kids? They don't like him too much. Yes. But one girl, Kathy H., seems... Very caring, and she seems to look after him. I want to look after him. But she does approach him at one point, and he spins around, because he's kind of losing it and screaming. He spins around, and he hits her accidentally. Uh, she has to go to a special medical exam with the school nurse and doctors to check for any damage. They seem very concerned about this. Mm. So things are adding up here. One, they don't want the kids to take any drugs, and this is the late 70s, so good luck with that. Two, they're really concerned when they get hurt. And three, they're kind of collecting the products or the the intellectual kind of output uh, of their the artistic or you know the sensual side or maybe I don't know uh, the feeling side of their brains for for later retrieval. It seems. Okay, Miss Lucy comes in with a shocker, doesn't she? She tells them one day. What does she tell them? She says, "Oh, do you know why? You know, you think you can't leave this place. Why they've told you that?" And she says, "It's because you're all." bound to become organ donors. Before your middle age, you will start to donate your vital organs. And after three to four donations, your life will be complete. complete. That's after, though, the van has arrived. And all the kids are really excited for a bumper crop arriving by van. Basically, they unload what, to our eyes, would look like junk from the van. (laughs) The kids are really excited and they go around buying the junk for tiddlywinks which is that seems to be their currency. It's strange, isn't it? So we get a sense of how isolated and deprived socially, emotionally, these young children are. There's also quite a nice car that one of the 
Staffatens, isn't it? It's a citron. Probably you probably like it, Paul. Right, I've looked into it. I think you might mean the Citrian um the Carolite. It's either the Citroen Diane, which is a version of the Citroen 2CV, or you could be the Citroen Mahari, which was a 2CV platform-based little army desert vehicle, like a, I guess you might call a beach buggy, but with somewhat ugly duckling look. Well, the Citroen in this film is the AMI, A-M-I, the AMI 8. Oh, well, you have to admit, a design classic, yeah? Isn't it beautiful? Well, it's striking, yeah. Handsome, let's say. <laughs> You just don't go for Citroëns, do you, Richard? Of any era. I do appreciate the design choices that they're making. Like the steering wheel with one spoke, that kind of stuff. And the clever suspension. Obviously, everyone thinks that's clever. Yeah, But I, they don't really appeal to me, no. Too Francois Truffaut? Too sophisticated Parisien? They're very French, aren't they? Of course, they're also de- they're designed for rough French roads as well, because France is a, is, is a country of countryside and cities so they're very they have unpaved roads that's definitely you might be thinking well it's such a large country they couldn't pave it to the extent that we paved ours the other thing is you might be thinking about the Renault 4 is that what you think you said that last time and I didn't I don't care to check (laughs) let me have a look the Renault 4 yeah okay Uh, that's not what I was thinking about Uh, are you into the Renault 4 oh deeply yeah In, in many senses, although it was a response and a reaction response to the 2CV's, you know, explosion onto the market, it is in itself a really, really, really good car. Mm. I think it surpasses the Mini. Because oh. we're all big on the Mini in this country, you know, cause patriotism and that, 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 that kind of stuff. But the 2CV and the Renault 4, I think, surpass the Mini in many respects. Thanks for listening to Drive Time. And now <laughs> on, with the, on with the podcast. <laughs> If you enjoy cars, you'd like to look at our new logo, which I'm sure Richard mentioned last week. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does feature a car, yeah. That's absolutely true. Fittingly, I think. Anyway, Miss Lucy, because I, I, we got there, yeah. She's, I mean, she's banished. She's fired. Really, from... She's fired, told the yeah, truth. And never spoken of again. Yeah. But, I mean, the children now know, don't they? And it's something they're going to live And then with. Kathy sees her good friend Ruth holding hands with Tommy, who she's obviously grown fond oh, of. this is achingly done, yeah. Oh, this is awful. I really felt for it. And while she's in assembly or something, she sees she's her friend Ruth kiss him outside. And she's yeah. uh, uh, she's confiding in someone, isn't she? She's saying that girls are always mean to the boys that they like. Maybe I should have teased him too. It's very sad. It is really sad and very well observed. Inevitably, of course, so she what, has to the, let him go. They were, what, you know, 13 or 14 at that age? Was that maybe 12? I don't know. I think they're, they're supposed to be more like, oh, that age, yeah, they're still very young, aren't they? Yeah, maybe 12, 13, 14, I'm not sure. So we now see, a few years later, 1985, in a place called yeah. The Cottages. At 18, we're told, they're moved to various locations to wait until they're old enough to start donations. Some have the option of volunteering as carers. I think carers will look after the people who are donating. But eventually the carers will become... Donors also. And we learn that it's more than just one school, more than just Hailsham. There are other schools supplying, you know, the 18-year-olds to these homes and these shelters. Because the uh, former school school uh, school children from other schools arrive at the cottage and the farm and reveal, reveal their fate. Okay. So as clones, which they now understand themselves to be, obviously their first thought, or the second thought maybe, is is where did I come from? Where did I come from and who was my original that they were cloned from? My original is the other other term they use here. So completion and original are, are words that are kind of used in this in this in this organ donor world to me. To me They're euphemisms, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Also apparently, although this I think this is true in the novel, it's not really explicitly stated in the film. I think they're supposed to be genetically engineered to be sterile. I see. Yeah. I think in school we we saw sex education class, didn't we? Because there was a skeleton in sort of a, a, a legs akimbo position and the teacher seemed to be explaining something about putting a cushion under the backside. So I don't think they're stopped or inhibited from having sexual relations with one another, but they're never going to have children. They're doomed to be infertile. Oh dear. At this age... Ruth and Tommy are now definitely an item, a couple. Oh, they're banging on the hay, aren't they? And Kathy accuses Ruth, her friend, 
of copying intimacy from TV programs that they're watching. And she says that people don't do that in the real world. Interestingly, they're not in the real world, are they? They're sort of sequestered. They're living in this isolated farmhouse. I don't think they're stopped from going out to the real world. They're, they can leave on day trips, kind of thing. But they must come back to the farm at some point. And I suppose they probably feel like they don't belong. So my, my thought that kept cropping was, well, why don't they try and escape? Yes, I, I agree. This is what Ishiguro really gets through about British society, you see. It's like, you can see how it be in Britain that actually people would just kind of accept their fate. You know, I don't know how he gets it across. He gets it across so much better than anybody else could do. But it just, for me, the thought is, why don't they try to escape? And I thought, well, I can, I can feel why they're not trying to escape. But I'm still looking for the logical reason why they wouldn't want to escape. And I can't really find it. Doesn't it also speak of the fact that this is really allegor- allegorical? It's not real. It is, yeah. However, they are chipped, aren't they? They're chipped in some sort of way, so I guess they could be trapped. Yeah. But still, if you're, gonna, if you're facing termination... You'd unprotect your arm with a chip in, wouldn't you? I think I would, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd give it a go, wouldn't you, at some point? And, you know, they're not being, they're not being terrorised. They are being badly treated. I, I think what we learn as well later on is that Hailsham, the school that they were at, was an experiment in being civil to people. And the other schools that fed into the system, I think, treated the kids much less kindly or at the very least didn't bother to educate them as, you know, as well and as deeply as maybe Hailsham did. So during their time at the farm, it crops up repeatedly uh, amongst various uh, goings-on where where Kathy grabs one, grabs the boy's razmags and looks through Picorama. it. The reason she's looking, The reason she's looking through it when she's discovered by Ruth, Ruth says, oh, you're just doing that because you want to imagine yourself with Tommy or that kind of thing. Or, no, Tommy finds her doing it, yeah. I, I don't know, but Tommy finds her doing this kind of stuff with a razmag and says, you know, don't be jealous of me and Ruth. But actually, the reason she's looking through the Razmag is that she's looking for her original. Looking for anyone that looks like her, yeah. that's The rationale is that, and I'm not sure if it's this or a later stage of the movie, it's like the, the people that they chose to, to create these clones were obviously people that wouldn't be able to really oppose the idea. So, you know, drug addicts, uh, sex workers, people in the gutter, I think is the phrase that's used in the movie. Kind of thing, and so she thinks. Well, you know, Razmag, some of these girls might be doing it for a bit of dosh. They might be, hot, you know, run into hard times. And she's looking through all the Razmags to see if her mum's there. But I don't really buy that. Surely, well, I think other films have done this same idea, haven't they? This isn't, and I don't know the timeline. I don't know whether this is an idea that was around when we were talking about cloning Dolly the sheep and stuff. But surely it will be the rich people who clone themselves and keep a body on ice, as it were so that they can enjoy everlasting life. And you'd want a clone of your own cells, wouldn't you? Not not somebody else's. So you would think it would be the well-to-do people who were cloning themselves. But here we're just talking about organs, aren't we? I think we're in an intermediary state here where we could only really... Yeah, absolutely. We're not talking about full brain transplant territory. We, we can clone the entire the being, but we can't preserve the being, I think. Can we? Surely, yeah, yeah. Obviously not. So Yeah. So at some point, they do all head out, after various arguments between Kate and Ruth and tension between them, to a coffee shop. Yeah, because another couple, Chrissy and Rod, claim to have found or seen Ruth's original in the outside world. Ah. Are Chrissy and Rod also the people who are copying the styles off the TV show in terms of their relationship? I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. It's the long-haired boy and the, and the brunette girl, isn't it? So there's a revealing moment where they're in the coffee shop trying to meet this original. And they obviously have never been out in the real world before and they don't know how to order things. And they all order the same thing and are waiting, tripping over their words to find out what to say to the waitress who kind of just, he's just completely weirded out by their, by, by their actions. Sausage, so, egg really, and I chips was a, and Coke. Yes, please. Five times. Sausage, egg, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I meet, please. Me too, please. Yes, thank you. It's, uh, it's done in a really good way. They're halting kind of uh, awkward delivery just confirms that they just they're out in the deep here you know they're treading water out in deep water and they don't know what's going on so yeah and then the choice of locations is very evocative isn't it you get that sense of open vista of emptiness 
I'm sure it's on the East Coast somewhere, but I'm not sure where. It all feels very 1950s, doesn't it, the whole thing? It does. Even though we're supposed to be in the 1980s at this point. There is. There's a tranquil sedateness to it that's also slightly unnerving. Whilst they're in the cafe talking, Chrissy says that she wants to talk to them. But she can't in the cottage because there's always somebody listening. And she says that there's rumours that if a boy and a girl are in love, they will defer their donations for three to four years or something. They ask Ruth and Tommy and Kathy if they know who they have to apply to. It seems like the rumours in this network are that Hailsham students, as it were, alumni, have got sort of secret knowledge and, and know things about how to manipulate the system. Uh-huh. And I think we kind of know better, don't we? We know that the kids don't know any better. But they have been better treated, which is why there's this suspicion around them, I suppose. And so does the mythology of the artwork being the key to being deferred, does that start here or does that start later in the movie? I can't quite remember. It is certainly true that someone is coming and taking their pictures away and assessing, appraising their art. And I suppose that feeds into this mythology, doesn't it? That's the idea. It's part mm-hmm. of the legend that hails from kids no, no more. But really, I think it's... I, I think in the novel's world... The reason for that is, again, they're trying to teach these children civility and bring them up like you would bring up any kid, and they're showing them creativity and so on. I guess it's just like being being normal kids. And in part, I think one of the people doing that is a sort of activist and wants to say that it's unethical to do this, which, you know, arguably is. <laughs> <laughs> It all comes to a head. There's a big, another big blowout, like a second blowout between Kathy, best friend, and Ruth. You know, they they go to a travel agent's and peer in through the window where Chrissy and Rod say yeah. her original Ruth's original is. They look at a brunette woman who they think might be her, but when she turns around, it's nothing like, it's nothing like her, is it? And then there's a big blowout where Kathy and Ruth have a final argument again concerning Tommy. Uh, Ruth is quite cruel and says, "Look." Kathy, you've got to face the fact Tommy's only ever seen you as a platonic friend. And uh, Kathy, in a strop, basically leaves the farm, cottage farm, yeah, and becomes, starts her career as a carer. Should say that Kira uh, Knightley is playing Ruth, isn't, isn't she? So That's right. Ruth, angry with Kathy, uh, has told her about them being prostitutes modelled on winos and hobos looking in the gutter, as you say, which I don't, I don't fully understand, but there we are. Did, did you notice that a bird landed on the kettle while Kathy was making? No. That's how you get bird food, no, probably, doesn't. isn't it? They should be careful of that. <laughs> you don't want birds on your kettle. You've got to be careful with things dropping in your food and your water. Uh, I, I moved into Story a flat in, in a city, uh, <laughs> and uh, I didn't clean the extractor fan. And, like, I was eating my chili con carne. I wonder, what are those white bits I've been oh, eating? No. <laughs> right. And then I looked at the extractor fan. It was congealed bits of fat. Like all the goo they collect in the extractor fund that turn solid and right. white, fallen into okay. my food. Oh, so this extractor. I, I looked at it and also it was interspersed with cockroach eggs as well. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. If you're moving to a new flight, anybody, please, 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 please. Give it a thorough, thorough, thorough spring. Clean your extractor fan. But most extractor fans are not like in the ceiling directly above where you're eating or serving your food, are they? I guess they might be over the cooker. No, I mean the I mean I mean the grill the grill. Oh kind right, of okay, I see thing. the hood, the cooker hood. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I see. Lovely. <laughs> anyway. So yeah. So uh I, we kinda jump ten years now, don't we, to about nineteen ninety two or nineteen ninety three, something like that. Kathy is still working as a carer. So she's you know, she's not moved on to becoming a donor, and so she's still a long way from completion, isn't she, in nineteen ninety four. And it seems that she's lived, you know, quite well, quite an isolated life because she's not part of society, is she? Uh, but she seems to be doing a very good job as a carer, caring for the other donors as they need a condition. You, you have missed the bit where it all gets very triangular relationship, where Tommy confides that if the rumours were true, he wouldn't be applying for an extension with Ruth because he would have to prove oh. his feelings in his gallery and he wouldn't have any proof of his feelings in the gallery of work that he'd done. Ah. When having sex with Ruth, Tommy is obviously kind of not into it. You can see, he, he's like along for the ride. He's not really present. 
Ruth later confronts Kathy late at night and she tells her that she knows about the porno mags. And then she, Ruth kisses Kathy, saying that she knows, as if the implication being that Ruth has always fancied Kathy, I think. I think that's the implication. Maybe she thinks that her looking at the porno mags is an indication that she might be interested in, in girls too. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but she's wrong, unfortunately. Yeah. So eventually, as you say, by this time, Kathy has been a carer. Ruth and Tommy, apparently. We know what's going to happen. We know, as a carer, we know she's going to bump into them again, yeah? Like, this isn't, I mean, it's explicit that it's going to happen in the movie. So it's not like a cliffhanger or anything like that. We know that Ruth and Tommy did separate. She explains that, I think, in a voiceover. And we know that it's called the NDP, the National Donor Programme. Wow. And I think it's 1994 now. 94. She's living in a brutalist apartment block. Might be Trivithic Tower or something similar. And she goes to the hospital and does her visits with people, doesn't she? And it's there. She's meeting one of these donors, Hannah. She's got one eye by the time she sees her. And she dies during the operation. While she's in hospital, she sees that Ruth is there as well. Ah, that's right. She's done two donations already. But she's looking okay. But the nurse thinks she'll complete on the third. You know... What can you take from someone and them still be okay about it? Obviously, we've got two kidneys. Eyeballs, definitely. One of them, at least. Well, I guess you could take both, but it seems a bit cruel. Inner ear organs, definitely. Are they normally transplanted? What, inner ear? No, but you could. Okay, just if you want to. get to a situation where we're ripping, well, we're ripping bits out of people now, which you don't normally do, so I guess you could do. Kidney, definitely. Def- well, people have your kidneys. People donate their kidneys all the time. Half a, half a liver definitely it grows, grows back, back, so you can do liver. You could do maybe one lung. I don't know why. You could definitely do one lung, yeah, without a doubt. But that's about it, isn't it? Brain, you know, no. Nothing else is redundant. That's it. You've got three or four things only. But again, you know, that this medical analysis, I think, is probably missing the point of the story, isn't it? Mm. I don't think it's about this really being the way we would do it. And indeed, along with cloning Dolly the Sheep and stuff, there's talk of growing organs independently, isn't there? Like outside of a body. Yeah. So, you you know, the idea that you would raise a human being from, you know, from, from birth all the way up to 18, 20, 30 and keep them alive just to harvest organs from them seems crackers. So we've got to look a bit deeper, I think. I know, I know it's not our forte. I think we've got to look a bit deeper into this film, don't we? <laughs> I'm, I'm currently trying to think of a word that isn't pontificate, but means similar things. So not not my forte expressing myself <laughs> on this thing. Uh, it is definitely not about what it's about. Yes, uh, and I I was going to say I was going to leave this till later. Really, well, it does. What does sci-fi, it does come back later? What do sci-fi movies? What do sci-fi movies? What do sci-fi movies try to do when they're not? Well, no, many of them are talking about sci-fi and about the future and about about science and about technology. But nearly all of them are trying to do something else at the same time, aren't they? Which is the good ones. Not just a comment, ones. not just a comment on present day or future society or humanity, but also to propose to the viewer or to prompt the viewer or to urge the viewer to reflect, maybe, yeah, on human nature and the continuity of the good and bad of human nature in a variety of environments advantageous or disadvantageous, usually advantageous in the future. And, you know, how how good and evil, if you like, uh, are continuous themes. Yeah. And so obviously it's it's asking us to reflect in some sort of way. But I think the genius of Kazuo Ishiguro is that he does this, he does his sci-fi without any recourse to special effects, you know. And that's what really separates the great writers from from other people, I think. Is that I got a sense, yeah, this is this is seventies Britain, but it, I also got that sense that this is another world, you know. Amazing. It's retro futurism, isn't it, of kind or Brilliant, you know, I mean that's his power, I think, as a writer. Is he really conveyed a sense, another another world, another potentiality. Uh, that was so close and yet so distant to, to where we are. Or maybe not so close. Maybe not so distant. And I guess we'll get onto that. So let's make a note. Let's dab a note in the air uh, to get back to what Richard just proposed, which is to talk about what's all it's all about. <laughs> Kathy becomes Ruth's carer. I don't, I don't know whether it's official or unofficial or how it, that's how it works. But she sort of stays the night in the hospital, doesn't she? Ruth says that she has uh, wants to take a trip. She says that she knows that Tommy has done two donations and is doing much better that's than right, she is. Yeah. 
but she wants to make a trip and call in on Tommy on the way. And they do that, and Tommy says that Hailstrom is closed now, and now all the schools are more like battery farms, which the implication being that Hailstrom... Hailstrom failed in its mission. Yeah, it didn't reform the way they were doing it. They wind up on a beautiful beach with a, a sort of ruined boat on it, which reminded me of the beach in the film Dunkirk, actually, and the similar sort of boat marooned on it. Tommy is perhaps doing better than Ruth, but he does have a movie cough, so... <laughs> we know it's, it's on, on the way. Yeah. <laughs> Completion is near. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth uh, asks for forgiveness from Kathy for keeping her and Tommy apart. Said that she was and implicitly from Tommy because she admits that she didn't love him ever. Said that she was jealous of who and about who. We're not sure, I suppose. Um, but the, she to make up for it, to make amends, she has the address of the person that they can go to to apply for an extension if they are really in love. The madame, the gallery owner, the person that collected all their The art. person, actually, who drove this Citroen. Ah, I didn't. Oh, yeah. Ruth then dies on the operating table for her third operation. That's right. Third donation to Carmen. Yes. And that's when Cathy admits. Yeah. And it's, it's done unsentimentally, unsent- in an unsentimental, but quite moving way, you know. Like, the camera doesn't flinch from, from you know, slow death, really. Cathy then sort of opens up with Tommy, doesn't she? And she says... Something more about the porn mag saying that she was looking for her original, not not because she had been, but because she had these urges to have sex. Uh, and you know, Tommy says that's completely normal. You know, they go and see Madame and Miss Emily, who I think was one of the head teachers or something, and they explain to them. Sadly, there are no deferrals; it's all a rumor. And other schools mistreated the kids. The gallery was their attempt to show that they had souls. So it was it was her attempt to demonstrate to the authorities these children had souls. Was that right? That's right. That's what we take from it, isn't it? Yeah, because when I when I watched it, it was I wasn't really seeing that perspective. I thought it was just I thought it was like you know two people, you know, the headmistress and this gallery owner saying, "Do these children have souls?" We're not sure. I, I thought it was like you know almost like you know a Mengelian kind of experiment into are these are these actually human or not? That's not the point. They believe they were human, right. and they believe that they should be given. More rights, yeah, because in in this revelation, you know, it's all quite cold. You know, they they've come to a beautiful edifice of Victorian, you know, front front beach kind of uh, townhouses or terraces, and it's all quite sedate and stately in there. But there's a coldness to it, all, isn't there? Well, there's a there's a lack of warmth in the way that all this is all this is revealed. You know, so I I, I misinterpreted. I thought you know that they were just indulging in some sort of bizarre and cruel experiment. But no, they were trying to advocate for these children and fail completely. Of course, we now come to the moment in the movie where Tommy completes and he dies on his donation. The final scene of the movie, really, I think he's trying to explain what we've been grappling with because Mm. Kathy says something very profound, which is, I think the quote is that we all complete. None of us understand what we've lived through or feel we have enough time. Mm. Which I suppose is the message of the movie, right? It's trying to say that we're all uh, time is short for all of us, so we should live our life as as if it was short. Yeah, like, I I think you know those few years before you die. I think for most people, you know, you feel life receding away from you. You know, it's like you're zooming away from a shore of life, kind of thing. You know, and it is difficult when it all starts receding so quickly. To, to grasp onto it and, and to get a hold of it. So it, it must be an awful feeling, mustn't it, those last those last few months. For everything to suddenly, to realise that nothing has significance anymore. And really, you know, this elegaic uh, kind of soliloquy that she does at the end is really powerful uh, and really stands out. Lots of silence that's well used in this movie. There's lots of, uh, there's lots the... of staring out on a beach over a grey... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't find it oppressive, you know, because it's not overacted. No. And also, it's really nice no. scenery, too. If you like misty British beaches, and I do. I think there are other themes welling under here, too. It, I mean, it does address in a crude sense that you know, some of the ethics of the medical advances. But is it also not a dissection of British class? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, because they're an underclass, aren't they? Very much so. But it's a kind of... 
civilized ignorance. I think he pricks with the sexuality towards this. He's like, you know, we couldn't really expect teenagers to be this innocent uh, or to, to not know about things to this extent. Certainly, I mean, I don't think Japanese teenagers in the 50s, 60s or 70s, you, you could rationalize them thinking like this, really. I don't think. So there's a peculiar Britishness I think allows this societal imbalance to take place. But I think I think his major thesis is that this is already British society as a whole. You know, this, this is, is how it already this, is. Yeah, yeah. This is how it already is. You know. Yeah. yeah. Is that we have people suffering, then they don't really understand that they're suffering because everything's so genteel. Yeah. Kind of. yeah. It's yeah, as you say. Unfortunately, extremely tasteful. And, <laughs> but also impactful, yeah. So yeah, so definitely a microcosm of British society. The fact that it's also wallpaper and carpeted, we can't recognise the chains of our own oppression, you know. And the fact that brother makes brother slave to, to, to somebody else, not even his own slave. So yeah. It's clever, especially because it's not having to paint any broad brushstrokes kind of like council estate type um, image of the underclass. Here, the underclass are, you know, actually very middle class, aren't they? They're being educated and they're, you know, they drive a Volvo. Palpably deprived emotionally and socially. You can just really feel how deprived they are, you know. Uh, So I don't know how he gets that across, but he does. So yeah, it's not Alan Bleasdale, you know. (laughs) No. In the kitchen kitchen sink. Oh, I've just got laid off and our son's a heroin addict. (laughs) What do you mean, Tommy? I've got AIDS, you know. The, the, you know ridiculous. It's, it's a comical situation in Bleasdale where the three of them just reveal each of their sort of inner city worries. Uh, <laughs> Mum's got AIDS. And, you know, dad's, dad's lost his job. The, the son's on smack kind of thing. So it's, there's none of that. There's no dramatic, there's no Greek dramatic tension there. Uh, it's, it's, it is elegaic and, and very, very English countryside, bucolic in its feel. Yeah. So getting back to the idea of, well, I thought we've discussed it. What does this movie mean? I don't know. I mean, it's great science fiction, isn't it? Dystopian science fiction. Just a, a hallmark of really good writing. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I wanted to like it, but you know, it, it's impossible not to appreciate it, even if you don't, even if you're not totally on board with it. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you know, I, I did read this twenty five. Oh, really? Years did ago you? So you knew the book. Whenever it came out, I think it came out what, 90, late nineties. Right. I don't. Know, I don't know when his book is from. No, it's much later than that. Actually, I lost it on a on a on a um, on a Bet. Uh, overnight sleeper uh, coach. No, overnight sleeper coach in Japan. Okay, in Japan. Uh, so how appropriate. Uh, yeah. So it, it was only about 15, 20 years ago. I think this novel was written. But he's got some great ones. Colorless, colorless, uh, Uzaki, or again. Really dark themes. That one's about a Japanese boy, teenager again, who's accused, uh, this is way before Me Too movement, uh, accused of, of abusing or raping one of his female friends. And they were all in a real sort of close coterie of like six or seven high school pals or whatever. And he becomes colourless in his life afterwards, uh, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, and again, he doesn't shy away from really going for troubling uh, material at all. But he can really, really hold a novel really well, I think. So, yeah, I've read all his stuff at various times. Not the recent stuff, because I've stopped reading novels in the last 10 years. But before that, I've read it. So it was good to come back to it. Uh, and I think it is one of those things that's really faithful to the novel and holds really well. So, no, I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. I was ready to give it sort of bonus or, if you like, charity art points for it being a rare, serious, like, serious movie that we had towards. But no, I was really impressed. So I guess we're getting on to scoring. So here's a question then. As a reader of the book, do you think it delivered the same tone and feeling? Yes, very faithful. Really faithful. Yeah. That's good then. Yeah, so let's let's score it then. So, I mean, acting? Great. Eight. I don't really have much to say about the acting part. It was really good. I know you're a fan of Kieran Knightley, aren't you? Kathy, played by Kerry Mulligan. By the way, oddly, is married to one of the Mumford and Sons. Did you know? No way! Oh, I don't like them. No, nobody does. But she, that's her cross to bear. But apparently she had wanted to play this role for a long time. So I think she somehow advocated for it. Charlotte Rampling, big names in there, obviously. Uh, Kira Knightley. Now, Tommy played by Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield, before. before No way. Uh, Charlotte Rampling, as you said. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great cast, and it's played with great, uh, what's the word, sensitivity. Eight for me, what did you score, Rich? I'll give it an eight. Okay, on to the plot, storyline, dialogue, however you want to say it. Okay, I think it held, nicely paced for me, in fact, perfectly paced for what it was about. Did I want twists and turns? No, I didn't really, given the subject matter. So... So, yeah, I just wanted, you know, the emotional uh, and character examination that it was, really. So for me, the plot held, I'm going to score it 7.5. I mean, it has a big impact, sure. And it's very clever. I, but I still don't quite like this feeling, this thought, that it doesn't, you know, on the face of it, it doesn't really... Not accurate science. It doesn't science. really hold up. I'm not saying it has to be accurate science, necessarily. It's It's... But it doesn't also feel like accurate people, does it? Like, I can't get away from the fact that young people in this situation, some of them, maybe not all of them, of course, but some of them would just run away or... No, you're right, you're right. I mean, that's another story, and it's not the one he's telling. Sure, maybe that happens in his world, and that ends up being like a, you know, a born Identity style, you know, crazy Mission Impossible escape from 1950s Britain. I don't know. I know that's not what he's writing, but I can't escape the feeling that we're watching like the least interesting thing in that world. <laughs> it is a seven, though, because it's very, very good in many, many ways. Okay, third category, launch board for ethical crooks. <laughs> Does it make you seesaw in your mind about ideas here to Viver? In terms of ethics, again, it's allegorical, but... The ethics, but also you know, in terms, it, it does fatality and mortality. Does it? Does it do all those things? Oh for God! You? I mean, it speaks very uh, nakedly about yeah, mortality and understand and fatalism, doesn't it? And does it make you imagine a hair shirt in the in the corner of a room that says "Come on, put me on," kind of thing? Does it help you talk? This <laughs> is what I'm asking. It, it certainly opens that door. Yeah, yeah, and I, does it really well? And, uh, you know, perhaps not ideal for the Christmas period. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Nine for me. A really thoughtful movie. Provoked me to think much more deeply than I'm used to. Uh, oh, yeah. Wasn't entirely comfortable with it, but uncomfortable in a good way. I'll give it. Because a- <laughs> not all uncomfortable, not all uncomfortable, uh, challenging art is valid, is it? Let's face facts. I will give it a seven. But this definitely is uncomfortable and challenging. It's valid for every reason. So a nine for me. Right. Is there anything else we can do about this mood? Yeah, landscapes and mood and mist. Hmm. Pebbles on the shore. For me, really good location choices here. Great ev- evocation. Uh, three eras, actually. Although I don't think the 90s was particularly convincing. All the 80s, really? Yeah. Uh, it all felt like the 50s. Nice choice of cars, though. Yeah, okay. Uh, you, it's beautifully shot. It's an Alex Garland movie, isn't it? So it is, it is an 8, I think, yeah. Final score for me, 8.5. A massive recommend. I have to say, this is significantly higher than the reviews it gets on aggregator sites. Uh, typically, only gets like sixes and sevens and sevens and a halves. I don't know why not. I don't know why it doesn't score as well as I think it should score. Maybe people are overwhelmed by, by the emotional chargeness of this movie. I don't know. But for me, an 8.5. I think it is really hard hitting. This is no Harry Potter, right? <laughs> I'll give it a seven. Which I think is fair. I think it's fair. It's a challenging movie. It's good. Uh, there we go. Yeah. I think then we're going to have to do a movie we keep suggesting but have never picked, and another art movie. Oh wow! So I'm going to suggest it for next. Is it is it is it particularly is it particularly relevant for the Christmas and New Year period? Oh, absolutely. Is it real upper? Like, am I going to am I going to go to the forty second floor and feel wonderful about this thing? Yeah, you're tipping your hat towards the choice, which is going to be High Rise. High Rise, by another wonderful author. J.G. Ballard, yes. J.G. Ballard, full out of favour these days, I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, J.G. Ballard, High Rise, I'm really looking forward to this. It's like the Clockwork Orange that's supposed to be okay to watch, I think. (laughs) All right, well, yes, more food for our brains over the Christmas period. Yeah, more excuses to call the helpline, if if need be. So do join us next time, is it episode 23, Richard? We normally only figure that out at the start of each episode, but yes, if this is 22, join us. it will be. Join us for 23 Oh, my next. God. In 23. Until the next time, goodbye. Thanks for joining us. Ciao for now. See you in the next one. Bye.